You're listening to the Get Fucking Real Show. Strap in as your host, Lisa Cherney, takes you on a ride full of GFR moments. From powerful messages to exclusive interviews to untold stories of super shitty moments before big successes. And even real-life confessions. Lisa's been mentoring millionaire entrepreneurs for over 20 years, coaching top coaches and tapping her mighty woo-woo side to mentor the best of the best spiritual peeps. It's time to bring on the straight talk from successful, soulful entrepreneurs, inspiring you to live without regrets, to create your legacy, and be unapologetically you. And now, it's time to GFR. Life is too short to be a slave to your own dream Cause I'm working too hard And I want to feel so alive I jump out of bed because I love my life Living on my terms, I know that I will thrive Being myself, clarity will arrive So I'll stand out and be J-U-I-C-Y Hello, hello, GFR peeps. I am thrilled to be here with you and to share with you what I am calling the mother of all GFR episodes with my very special guest, George Bryant. This episode is record-breaking in its length and record-breaking in the diversity of struggle that this one human went through on the way to his journey of being the highest paid digital marketing consultant in the world, creating six, seven, and eight figure businesses, including KitchenAid and Men's Health and Adidas. And it is a unfreaking believable life journey that this man went on. And the healing that he has walked through to be able to be on the show and talk through, share about his life in, in a poignant, self-aware, healed state. I am, you know, I went around and around about, you know, should I release all two hours at once and should we break it up? And, you know, myself and my producer, we really decided that it just, it needed to be all in one piece. And I'm inviting you to, to, let it be okay if you don't finish it all in one sitting um, and it will keep you hanging on until the end. It, it totally could be um, a quite uh, an awesome movie <laughs> and it has, it has all of it. I mean, when I say the mother of all episodes, I'm saying that um, George talks about um, his parents being addicts. He talks about being sexually abused when he was a young kid. He was an overweight teen and started self-harming himself. He left home when he was 16 and lived at a friend's house to the, till, up until the time that he joined the Marines without his parents' consent. And then for 12 years, he was in the Marines active duty and had bulimia, active bulimia. And he even went through a period where he got injured um, and had um, emergency surgery and was in a wheelchair. Uh, for 18 months and came through that. I mean, this literally has like almost every episode on the GFR show up till now uh, is included in this one man's story. Um, he had to deal with uh, 
caring for his dad that abused him in his childhood um, when his dad was dying from cancer. And he had to adopt his younger brother to take care of his younger brother. And, 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 and you're kind of wondering, like, how did this person become a, like, the highest paid digital marketing consultant in the world? Well, it all started when he, like, was desperate to get out of the Marines because he was finally realizing, okay, this, you know, this is not for me. I don't belong here. And he just, and he started to write a blog about the paleo diet. And he started to post recipes on a blog. He didn't even know what a blog was. And he hates cooking. But that is where his internet marketing journey began. And over seven years, he uh, grew that to seven figures. And, and that's just halfway through his story, y'all. <laughs> it is... It is, it has the twists, the turns, the ups and the downs. And it just, it, he also is super eloquent in sharing what he learned about, about why he went through what he went through and how it all uh, serves him now in his life. He's a dad. He has two kids, an amazing um, wife, an amazing relationship with, with his wife who, who um, almost, who, who left him, I think for the third time when she was seven months pregnant. I think that's part of the story. It's just it's really unbelievable. And so I, I, and I met him just um, by chance in the hallway at a conference I attended, right? It was, I think it was the last um, live events that happened um, before, you know, the whole world sh shut down. And, and, uh, and I'm so grateful that I got to meet him. We, it was kind of like, it sounds like a love story, but it wasn't, but our eyes locked and we dropped into such an authentic, immediately authentic conversation and exchange that we really, it was poignant. And he said, I need to be on your show. And he actually stalked me a little bit. <laughs> He's, I, I gave him the link to, to record the show in June. He said, no, I need to do it sooner. And he was right. He needed to do it sooner. And uh, I was honored actually that he um, wanted to be on the show and, and felt like it was such a, it was a very important thing for him to do. So um, he tells his whole story um, and got, goes into more t detail here than he has ever um, done before. And I know that you will appreciate his transparency, his honesty, his authenticity. Um, and, and, and you're going to learn a lot from him. Um, the foundation of his now um, consulting company and masterminds is that relationships beat algorithm algorithms. Relationships beat algorithms. I freaking love um, that tagline. And it says so much about what resonates with me, um, with the way that I am out there in the digital marketing world and the stand that he takes um, for heart-centered entrepreneurs to um, put relationships with their clients before any strategy is just beautiful. Huh, what else do I want to say? Oh, and at the end, usually... I record a separate session for the GFR squad that is very much of a, like a training, something that they could put into practice real time. Well, at the end of this episode, um, George shares two really cool, totally unique techniques that he teaches his mastermind members. He teaches them at the end of the, of the podcast. Um, one is called um, the, the Mountain Post. And if you want to love yourself more and honor like who you truly are and, and possibly channel that into your marketing more. He has a specific daily practice that um, uses voice memos and it's, it's nothing like you've ever heard before. So 
uh, that'll <laughs> I hope that gives you a nice carrot um, to listen all the way through, not only just to hear his triumph and how everything in his life happened for a reason, but to get some good shit at the end that you can use right away. Um, and there's another practice that he gives that was, it's really phenomenal. So um, yes, it's just, uh, it was awesome. Oh, and um, for two hours prior to this two hour, so I spent four hours with George this day, um, for two hours, we just connected and then he started coaching me y'all. And he so generously was giving me just his brilliance around how to get the 12 GFR commandments out there in a bigger way and create more transformation around it. And I just so resonated and leaned in, um, like never, I have pretty much, um, felt resistance to any online or internet marketer training or approach until I met George. And he just comes with such a pure intention around creating relationships and creating transformation that when he was telling me all these things I, I should do, I really, I really was open and receptive. So I'm excited about evolving my funnel, uh, my, my email relationship with people after they opt in for the GFR commandments. And so if you haven't opted in for them, do it now <laughs> and uh, you'll get to see the transformation um, in my journey and how I connect with you and uh, create an, uh, an end state, as George would call it, with those GFR commandments. So uh, he was very honoring of me and my mission and my expertise. And I, it was just a beautiful, beautiful connection and such a, an awesome sort of oasis in this time that we have that feels so uncertain. So I hope that you will feel guided and resonate with being connected to him uh, to hear his whole story, because I think it will transform your life. Without further ado, Mr. George Bryant. <laughs> All right, we're already laughing. Welcome, George Bryant, to the GFR show. I'm so excited to have you here. I am flabbergasted to be here. I, I feel like we have fallen in love and we just met. It's like this awesome uh, connection. We met at a, a conference, like in the hallway at a conference. And it was like one of those divine encounters where I, like our, you know, it's instead of our eyes meeting across the room, it's like our energies met across the room. And we were just like, all of a sudden it was just you and I in this conversation. And we were like, totally oblivious to everybody around us. We were just mm -hmm. so locked in, um, in our conversation. And I, I just, I could not wait to have you on the show to tell your fucking amazing story. It's, you guys are not going to freaking believe some of the things we're going to talk about and the beautiful after state that you're in. It's so, it's so hard earned. It's so well earned, George, that I just, I, I'm really honored to tell, to tell the story. I thank you. Uh, thank you for seeing me and thank you for allowing me to be here. It's a, it's truly a gift and an honor. You know, people heard your credentials. They kind of have this, you know, awesome perspective of this brilliant marketers worked with all these companies and 10 figures and nine figure companies and, and, and all that. And of course you wouldn't be on the show if you didn't have some struggle along the way. So where do you start to give people context like the arc yeah. of where of the story where where do you want do you want to start yeah you know? so I'll, I'll just yeah. start back there i know this i know this game you know the root you know the <laughs> i know this game and man like i like you know i've been on you know almost two thousand podcasts and i've been being interviewed for 10 years and i uh i still find new parts of the story every time you know it comes out new memories and and good healing but yeah i i start pretty young um 
you know, I think what's important to remember, and, and first off, like uh, for everybody listening to this, uh, I just want you to understand that like my commitment to you is that by the end of this, that you have a permission slip to do whatever it is that you want to do in your life because there's nothing holding you back. And so if my team or I or Lisa can support you in any way, I want you to understand that like that's an offer that's there for everybody and you can do it. Like literally you can do it. The difference between you know, success and, and stagnation is just owning your story so it can't own you and then moving through it. And Beautiful. so, you know, when I, when I share my story, I love my life. I would not be where I am today if I didn't have the lessons in my life that I had to be able to see the world this way. And so I don't look at my life and say like, oh, this happened to me. I was like, this happened for me. I was able to do this and go on three combat tours and go to combat and, and hold structure and process and heal and, and do some crazy things in my life that have served the world only because of the capacity that was created by practicing, you know, for a good amount of my life. So when I go all the way back, I, I grew up in a very unstable, unhealthy home as a child. So drug abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, to the point where like I had my first stitches when I was 11 months old, not normal. And by the time I was three, I think I'd already had like 50 or 60 stitches. One of the patterns that I've come to recognize as an adult is there was so much volatility in my childhood that one of the only ways that I could ever get my parents' attention was to get hurt and to self-harm. And so it was a repeating pattern. And so like my earliest memories were pretty scary. You know, my childhood, I remember almost all of it. There was a whole lot of verbal abuse, physical abuse, um, inconsistencies. I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember the first 18 years of my life ever having dinner at a dinner table with my family ever, not once in my entire wow. life. You did know, it, that feel normal to you at the, at the it time? Did. It, was it did. It yeah. did. Oh my god! It, it felt. It felt so normal. And you know, from a very young age, I basically went the route of the opposite of my parents, right? And so my parents were living a certain way. And I was like, I'm never going to smoke. I will never do a drug in my life. Like I'm never doing all of this. And at a very young age out of survival, um, rather than feeling my feelings and lashing out, I intellectualized a lot of my trauma, which was actually pretty dangerous because I spent, you know, the next 30 years on <laughs> doing it. But yeah, so my, my childhood, um, we moved. That's how you coped with it, right? That was how I was coped. Yeah, it's it's survival, right? It was, it's survival, right? Like, you know, I feel like, and all the work that I've done and I help people do now is, you know, you normally embody it and you let it run you, or a lot of times we intellectualize it and we try to use it as a way to protect ourselves, right? Can you give us an example of how you intellectualized it? Yeah. So I would, I would love to. So like, for example, you know, at a very young, I mean, I can remember having memories of like four or five and being like, I'm not going to eat today, right? Like I they're not going to get me anything. They're not going to, you know, follow through their word or things like that. Right. And so as a young child, I would sit there and I would feel alone and neglected and devastated. Like literally, like, I don't know why I'm on this planet. Like I, why am I here? Like, why is this my life? But at a very, very young age, I would intellectualize and be like, Oh, this is normal. Right. I'm not supposed to feel this way. I just have to act differently. Right. And so basically I robbed myself of my own childhood out of survival, right? I wasn't allowed to feel happy or else it was knocked down, but I also wasn't allowed to feel down or else it was, you know, knocked up. And, 
you know, I could do the best in the world, right? Because all I wanted to do is to please my parents. I would celebrate it. I'd get knocked down and told like, no, 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 it wasn't good enough, right? And then like emotionally abused. And then a day later, I'd have like the biggest toy in the world show up in front of me and be like, oh, see, I love you, right? And so I started to like intellectualize those things and that became my norm. Even to this day as an adult that spent 30 years doing work, personal development work, plant medicine work, like psychology work and things like that. I still have to be careful that when I'm with the people closest to me, that I don't repeat a pattern to where they come to me with ideas. I'm like, no. And then I go buy them a gift the next day. Like it still comes up, right? It's a presence game. And so I love my parents and my parents were absolutely amazing heart centered human beings that had a lot of unhealed trauma. And and I'm giving an intellectualized answer now because I've processed a lot of it and and healed, you know, all of those things. Um, My dad had five fathers by the time he was 16 all of them beat him and beat his mother you know my mom was the youngest of 11 and was sexually abused inside and outside and neglected and so you know like I look at what they were able to even do for me and it's mind-blowing and and also you know hurt people hurt people right and so my parents love me deeply and my dad you know isn't here anymore but my mom my mom still is and you know, I, I watch a lot of it and, and looking back as the adult version, you know, there was so much pain and fear and trauma that was just projected on the children. And, and it wasn't, you know, they were basically trying to reparent themselves, you know, through us, right. but, but on our side, it sucked, you know, so there was a whole lot of neglect, uh, a whole lot of abuse and fear, um, lots of threats, lots of things like that. My parents would physically fight. And I mean, like dangerous stuff. Like I remember conversations of like, oh, I bought you that chair for Mother's Day. Well, if you do this again, I'm going to tie you to it and burn you alive in the backyard kind of thing. And then hot cups of coffee or pots of coffee and like tools thrown at each other and broken everything. And um, so I tried to remove myself as much as I could. So like I isolated, I was fat, like extremely overweight. And then um, because of their lack of oversight, you know, when I was nine, I was sexually abused by my neighbors, my babysitters, three of them, three women, and I was nine. And then when I was 13, I was sexually abused by uh, two 18-year-old girls that were my parents' drug dealers' kids. And a whole lot of this like happened and a lot of volatility. And so basically, I started removing myself from the home. Maybe when I was like 13, I basically started like spending time with my friends. My parents were getting divorced. Social services were involved. We had two welfare checks a day. I was bullied my my whole childhood I, and and because of your weight my weight <laughs> my weight my family the cops the drugs the right. the overbite you were that family I was that family I was that family and then there was a time when we lived in Connecticut I was the only I was the only white kid in my class for 3 years so um, my front teeth got knocked out four times my nose was broken three times and so you know, my childhood wasn't loaded with, you know, fun memories. And because of the inconsistencies of my parents, like we would move a lot or come and go, or I wouldn't go to school for weeks at a time and, or, you know, things like that. And it was, it was pretty rough. And so when social services got involved, I called social services at 13 and my brother was five years younger than me, my full brother. And I couldn't really do anything. And I'd spent most of my childhood protecting him, right? Like I would insert myself into painful conversations to protect him and, you know, things like that. And so I got to a point where it was so volatile, I couldn't do it. So I started sleeping in my friend's basements, right? And I would go to school, but not really. I didn't want to be there. I was never really a good student and I didn't want to stay there, but I went, Um, but I started working at 13. So I basically got a 
I got a job under the table as a skate guard at an ice skating rink. I was a paper boy. And um, I just, it's funny. I got a Newsies flash as you were talking and then you my said favorite paper movie. boy. My favorite that's movie. So, the Newsies so is my favorite movie. It is an awesome movie with amazing um, music. And, and the Broadway it. and the Broadway play is awesome too. The play too. is amazing. Yeah. I haven't seen it live, but yeah. Uh, it was you were good. a newsie. <laughs> so I, I was a newsie. Um, I could so totally see you kicking ass. That's probably where a lot of your ingenuity came from. And so, like, basically, my childhood, I felt like I lived in a fight-or-flight state of survival, right? Like, yes. trying not to get hit, trying not to get bullied, trying not to, to die, basically. I started living in my friend's basement. His parents never asked me questions. They were a very wealthy family, but they never asked. They always took care of me. I lived there nice. for months at a time. But I paid my way through everything. And um, for whatever reason, I kind of, like, I learned from my father, like, a work ethic. And my father was, like, one of the hardest workers I'd ever met in my life. And he was amazing. He was a general contractor, finished carpenter, and his work was impeccable. Um, but his demons had a bigger control of him than his work. And it's weird that your dad can be you know, working with Christopher Walken and Hulk Hogan and doing things for them and all the Patriots players. And then they don't realize that, you know, eight hours later, he's completely, you know, gone off his rocker. And so we had this really, really interesting life. About 14 is when I'd say I really started struggling. And so um, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, it's good. I, I mean, right? but, I but mean, like, fuck. <laughs> But it was when I kind of came came of age, right? Like I right. was kind of becoming a man. I'd already had two very negative sexual experiences in my life. I didn't have a good example of what a husband and a wife were, a mother or father. I wasn't really parented. And um, my weight was out of control. And it was a family member that um, actually called me fat for the first time. I got invited to my first ever dance, which was a big deal for me. And I asked to go get a suit. And I had to rent one. And the guy said we'd have to pay double because the suit and jacket didn't match because I was too fat. And my own family made some comments. And that was the first night I'd ever perched and started struggling with bulimia uh, because I came home and I was so upset and so upset. I didn't know what to do, but I was so upset. I started hyperventilating and I eventually vomited. And when I puked, I felt better. And I felt better because I felt like I was in control of something for the first time in my life that feeling was nuts. And that's when I started struggling with bulimia. So here I am 15 years old, um, no friends really, except my one who let me live with them, working two to three jobs to pay my way. I was an assistant manager at Dunkin' Donuts. So I would wake up at 3.30 in the morning and I would bake from four to seven. And then I would go to school from 7.30 till 2.30. And then when I would get off school, I would go to KB Toys and work from three to nine. And I was the assistant manager there. Wow. And and that was when I was 15. So I would bum rides, I'd walk, I'd ride my bike. Um, and I was really just trying to avoid feeling and being around, you know, people in my life. And so that was my normalcy. And I was bullied in high school, tried to play sports, didn't really have the support. My parents didn't really care either way because they were in a seven-year legal divorce battle. So social seven services. Seven years. Seven wow. years. Yeah. Social services, divorce, you know, bankruptcies, moves, my brother, and so I just couldn't do it anymore. And so when I was 17, I went to the recruiter's office and as any normal broken boy would do, be like, well, let me go join the most disorganized, disgruntled unit on the planet, the Marine Corps. Um, and I don't even know where I came from. And so I walked in the recruiter's office. They told me I couldn't join because I was too fat. And uh, that lit a fire under me. And so I lost, you know, like 45 pounds in like three months, went back, forged my parents' signature and basically said, I'm getting the hell out of here and never coming back. I missed 
81 days of high school my senior year and my teachers knew we caseworkers knew and I feel like my teachers knew that if they held me back I'd never make it and I'd end up dead and I feel like they all passed me uh, to get me out of there because I was not like a good student I was super intelligent but I couldn't do this like study memorization stuff and I was trying to survive like I was more worried about paying for food and having a place to sleep and so they um they so they you're not judging them you're you're kind of saying oh i love them favor. oh i yeah. love them to be i still talk to most of my teachers to this wow. day oh my i've gosh. gone back to that school a hundred times how old are you now uh i'm 37 so it's been 20 years and i still stay in contact with almost all of them wow um and it it's funny i'm the most successful kid out of our high school and it's because of them and then seeing me for me, not for a checklist or a grade on a paper, but they saw my potential. They saw my light. They saw, you know, what was capable. So I left, joined the Marine Corps. And then my Napoleon complex took over, right? Like my stories, I'm not good enough. And I have to prove that to everybody. So I went to boot camp, graduated first out of 1800 people, went to Marine combat training, graduated first out of 500 people, went to wow. my job school, graduated first out of a hundred people, picked my duty station got stationed in Cherry Point and then got deployed to Somalia 2004, May of 2004, and uh, spent 13 months of my life in the most disgusting place on the planet, which is uh, war-torn Somalia and Djibouti. And um, at this point, uh, my parents had gotten divorced. My mom, Finally. <laughs> my mom ended up charging 21 criminal charges against my dad, and my dad reciprocated with three. All 21 against my dad were dropped. All three against my mom went through. There was still a custody battle messing with my brother and all these other things, but I just had to stay focused on my world. And so at this point I had chosen sides and I'd stopped talking to my mother when I was 15, when she called the cops to have me arrested for taking my own property out of my house. And so it was some crazy stuff. And so I didn't really talk to her, um, stayed in the Marine Corps, developed a really good friendship with my father, not father, son, but like a friendship because I had so much repressed unhealed trauma and PTSD that like didn't even register for me. And I joined the military without ever doing any work and then stacked on combat and death and you mean inner work. Yeah. Inner work, combat and death and more stuff on top of that PTSD. So like I had physical abuse stacked on top of sexual abuse, stacked on top of neglect and resentment. And then I stacked war on top of it. Right. Like, you know, uncle Sam's misguided children. So Somalia was a really, really interesting place for me. I spent 13 months of my life there and I was addicted to working out and that was my new addiction, right? So I would try to control bulimia with then orthorexia or, you know, obsessive working out or obsessive diet control. And I, I actively purged as a bulimic for almost 16 years. Like there wasn't more than three months that I went without a relapse and I was out there and I got obsessed with working out and getting big. And I was like, Oh, I'll show all these people. I was fat. Now I'm going to be a monster and ended up, getting really big, putting on a lot of weight. I was like 220 pounds and I'm only five, seven. And so I was like a a brick shit house. I was just a walking insecurity and anybody could tell except me. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) I got hurt really bad. So December 27th of 2004, which happened to be my 21st birthday, um, I almost lost both my legs in Somalia. And I ended up getting what's called exercise induced compartment syndrome. Don't Google it if you just ate and do not Google the surgery. And that's a little reverse psychology. So just be careful. Double fasciotomy is the surgery, but basically because of my weight and the temper 
the temperature that where it was like 130 degrees daily in Somalia. I weighed 220 pounds. I normally had a hundred pounds of gear on. And so I had exercise induced compartment syndrome, which basically meant the blood kept pumping into my legs, but was clogged and couldn't come back up to my heart. And so my legs started to expand and basically almost ripped open until oh they gosh. had to stick needles in and drain it, take the pressure out. And then they told me it was shin splints and I'd be fine. Um, oh so my up, gosh. I ended up spending six more months in country uh, excruciating pain. Like I, it hurt every day, but I was more scared of getting medically retired or kicked out than I was of dealing with the pain. Cause I had nothing to go back to. I was going to say, cause you didn't want to go home. No, no, yeah. I didn't have anything to go to. And so came back from Somalia in, um, June of 2005. And you know, when you get back, they do a post-medical physical. Um, so they saw my record, told them what happened. They're like, Oh, they told me it was shin splints. Like, Oh, we're going to do an MRI. I was out of the MRI five minutes before I was rushed into the ER and put on blood thinners because I had shot clots in my whole body and they flew me home from Somalia with blood clots and active injuries. I'm lucky I didn't die. I ended up in surgery that day. And so they did a, a partial surgery that day. It's called a, a fasciotomy to release the pressure and like, Oh, you should be fine. And the partial didn't work. And so I spent, you know, six weeks in a wheelchair to then be like, oh, we have to start again. And then they filleted me from knee to ankle on both sides twice. And um, I ended up spending 12 months in a wheelchair, 18 months of physical therapy. And that's when my addictions began and my addiction to narcotics. Other than bulimia. Yeah, my addiction to narcotics. And so after those surgeries, I was on a, what's called a PCA pump, a patient controlled anesthetic, which was just a direct line into my body. And I just hit a button every six minutes for morphine. And so basically I spent eight months of my life alone in a barracks room. I would eat one to two pepperoni pizzas a night with a bottle of ranch and a bottle of Frank's. This is when you were in the Marines. Uh-huh. In a wheelchair uh -huh. on convalescent leave as I'm healing. Right. I would eat two pizzas. I would uh, then force myself to purge it up. And then I would take a whole lot of pain medication and numb out and do it again the next day. And I actually gained a hundred pounds in five and a half months, five and a half, six months. So I ended up being about 257 pounds at five, seven in a wheelchair. Couldn't walk. They told me I'd never walk again. They wanted to amputate my legs and I told them to go fuck themselves. And then I was pretty broken. Didn't have any support system. I literally lived alone in a brick building, avoided the world and was basically on a path to death. I overdosed intentionally twice and um, nothing happened which was pretty upsetting, but I'm too chicken shit anyways. And I have a purpose to be here and I always have. And so I could never follow through with it, but found it really interesting that you can take, you know, 35 hydrocodone and wake up the next day. Like nothing happened. Wow. God really um, would yeah. not give in to your desires. <laughs> no, no. And, and, and I just want everybody to know I'm, I'm not talking about this nonchalantly. It's very serious to me, but I've also been spending the last 22 years of my life working through these things and processing them. And I'm completely healed and I love sharing this stuff for everybody, you know, because, you know, my intro and you'll hear it, right? Like the guy that built a couple billion dollar businesses and 300 plus eight, nine, 10 figure businesses and 22 week New York times bestseller. And I was like, yeah, and you have no idea that on that book tour between every stop, I was purging in the bathroom and taking hydrocodone, right? And it was paper. a cookbook. <laughs> it was a cookbook. And I was literally on paper, like, successful number one app in the world number four new york times best-selling book like millions of fans and i was like yeah and i was showing everybody what i wanted you to see not 
what I really was happening. And I was hoping somebody would interject and, you know, catch it. But uh, I just want everybody to know, like, this is, this is very, very deep stuff for me, but also every time I share, it's freeing and I love it. And it's just a beautiful reminder of like the resiliency of human nature and how all of those things aren't me. They were just things that I experienced, but they're not necessarily mine. And so, um, yeah, the Marine Corps, um, that was a rough period. And then what had happened was I was basically on what they call limited duty for 12 months. In your entire career, you basically get 12 months of limited duty. And then they're like, we're kicking you out because you're no longer fit for service. And so they looked at me and they said, hey, listen, you have 30 days to lose weight and pass a physical fitness test. And we're kicking oh, you out. I hadn't really walked yet. I was still in physical therapy, learning how to walk again. I had a really good physical therapist. She was a the scariest woman I've ever met about four foot 11, 95 pound Asian lady that scared the shit out of me. And so she signed me up for a triathlon three weeks later and said, well, she knew what would motivate you. <laughs> she's like, you don't have a choice because you're in the military. So you have to do what I tell you. And uh, if you say no, I'm going to turn you into command. And I was like, uh, and then she's like, and if you don't do, you're going to get kicked out anyways. And where are you going to go? And so it was kind of like a really big push. So she worked my ass off for like six hours a day, taught me how to walk again. And I ended up somehow in 30 days going from no walking to be able to pass a physical fitness test. And I barely passed, um, but it lit a fire under me. And then I became re-addicted to working out and proving that story wrong. And so made a full recovery, took, took about seven months after that to be like what I would consider fully recovered. And by full recovery, I mean, I don't have feeling in my legs from the knee down. So, you know, there's times I fall and I trip and things like that, but I've kind of learned how to manage that. And so I basically pretended that I was fully healed and went back on full duty. And so um, was stationed in Hawaii at the time, was back to running, you know, six, seven miles a day, being the best of the best of the fitness guy and then hiding in plain sight again, right? And so my theory was if, if I had a six pack and I was the strongest, fastest guy, then nobody knew that I was struggling with addiction and suicidal and depressive tendencies. And I would just hide in plain sight. And um, so made a full recovery to the best of my ability, was working. And then, and then um, on what March- just, What just Mar came through your mind in that? I could my dad, my dad. On, um, on March 5th of 2008, I got a phone call from the Red Cross that my dad had a seizure. I thought it was interesting that my dad had a seizure and the Red Cross was calling me because I was like, okay, you know, there's serious seizures, but this is interesting. So they called me, flew me home. And when I got home, uh, I landed at like 2 PM and I called my dad, where are you? He said, I'm at uh, the Dana-Farber hospital. I'm like, okay, cool. So I like Google it and it's Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And I was like, okay. Uh, so I pull up, find him, go in, and he's in the room with an oncologist, uh, Dr. Cadis, who is an amazing woman. And um, we started talking, and she said, uh, your dad has metastatic brain and lung cancer. It was lung cancer that metastasized to his brain, and he has uh, one to two months to live. I was like, okay, let me take a breath for a minute. And then she said, I have to do his physical. And so she asked him to take his shirt off, and he wouldn't take his shirt off. And so I knew that he was using, again, heroin. And so eventually took his shirt off and he was covered in drag marks. And I mean, from the fingertips to the toes, to the, to everything. And what had happened was three years earlier, he had a doctor's appointment and they did an X-ray on his lungs and they found out that he had a tumor on his lungs. So they mailed him the results and he threw them in the trash. 
and continued smoking and continued intentionally he threw them in the trash yep yep continued smoking eating like crap and then my dad always struggled with migraines and so i was used to him having like migraine pain and eating medication um but then what had ended up happening is that the cancer metastasized to his brain and his migraines were the worst had ever been and so he would disappear for two days because he would pass out and not wake up so i was still stationed in hawaii at the time my brother was 16 living with him and my dad would call me accusing my brother of being a drug addict and having drugs in the house and blah 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 blah. but my dad was using again to deal with the pain of the brain tumor and so there was a whole lot of like psychosis and things happening and so that day march 6th is when i got home my life changed because you know my dad and i had never really healed my childhood because i just pretended like it didn't happen and i just stacked the military on top of trauma and so that day i became his parent and it was ugly for a while and um, the marine corps put me on what's called a humanitarian transfer so they transferred me to a unit in rhode island because i was the sole provider for my family at this point my dad couldn't work I hadn't talked to my mom at this point in 11 years, 10 or 11 years. My brother was underage. And so I was the person that had to take care of him. And so I came home and I basically lived there for six months. I took care of my father. And so three weeks after I got home, he was paralyzed from the neck down because the tumor grew so fast. And so we started aggressive radiation. And after five weeks, he had regained feeling all the way back down to his feet, but his left big toe became ischemic, which means it died. And so they're like, you know, we're sorry, but you know, it's blood circulation. So they're like, we're gonna have to amputate the toe. And we're like, okay, like, you know, like, okay. Well, he went in with the toe and came out without a leg. And so it had basically spread all the way up his leg. And so that's kind of when things really started to unravel. Uh, anger, me being angry, fighting with the surgeons, like the, the gravity of all this was really starting to, to weigh and come to fruition. And, um, Got to give it to my dad. He was walking in our prosthesis two days later because he wanted to go outside and have a cigarette. I got to <laughs> love my dad for doing it his way. And so this was a very trying time. I was spending, you know, 20 hours a day at a hospital. Uh, my brother was 16. I was trying to get him a job to get him responsible, get his license. I sold everything I owned. Um, I'd already been deployed and saved money. I sold my bike, my motorcycle, my, my boat, um, all my furniture and basically liquidated everything I had to be able to support my family and uh, took care of my dad. And then he started walking again, took care of him, kept appointments normally. And at the end of six months, the Marine Corps um, said, Hey, it's been six months. You have to go back. And I said, yeah, okay, cool. And so basically got my brother, his license, a job paid for everything, got him so they could take him to appointments and things seemed to really kind of be on like the up and up. I knew my dad wouldn't be working again. He was a general contractor. He had no leg and, you know, bedridden and on cancer, but he was, he was doing pretty well. Like we had, we had slowed it down. And so they sent me back to Hawaii. At that point, I was probably in the darkest space I'd ever been uh, because once I was removed from that situation, I was back into where I spent all those months alone, gaining weight, being an addict. And then I just added more pain that I didn't know how to process with no support. And so it was a rough couple of months. And then. And you're still bulimic. This I'm so bulimic the whole time, the whole time, the whole time. And I mean, it was bad. It was, it was, it was bad. I mean, deployments didn't matter everywhere I could to try to regain some level of control in my life. And self-harming was another big part for me. Well, and that started in your childhood when you knew that was how you get your parents' attention. And then it continued. And so it, 
it molded from doing it to stop fighting to molding it to punish myself for other people's choices. And so I would, I mean, I'd broken my own nose. I'd broken my own ribs, black eyes. I drove a car into a tree at 60 with no seatbelt on. It was, it was dark, Lisa. It was dark for a long time. A long time. I'm just, I'm, I'm so really uh, in awe of the man that I'm talking to in this moment and that I've gotten to know uh, that, yeah. that, I mean, and I had seen some of your story in writing, but this is, yeah. um, it's unfucking believable. Um, and the, and, and I could see like you were, we spent a bunch of time before we hit record on, on the show and you've been so determined to have me see myself and how, awesome I am and my my mission and how important it is and there's very few people that I really hear how do I put this I don't know I just I feel like everything that you've been through and that you now and that you have healed and processed and learned from and and be able to speak about it in the way that you have has made you someone that when you fucking said those things to me I fucking listened mm-hmm. <laughs> you know there you know and and we talk a you know, about that on the show, about how, you know, we call them the GFR wormhole. You had like mm-hmm. fucking 25 GFR wormholes. Yeah. Um, I, I was, I was thinking like, y- you are probably, we're at episode, I don't know, like, you're like a combination of all of the episodes. Like you have all the things, you yeah. know, um, you know, and I, I don't mean, I'm not joking to, to, to no, make light no. of it other than to just. It's not, no, it's not. I, lo- <laughs> I love it. It's actually like, here's what I think is so interesting. I love that we're laughing about it, right? Like, I love that it's a story that I get to share. I love that I get to sit in this position and look back and be like, yeah, I had that in me the whole time. And it's funny, I created that whole life because I wanted to collect evidence that I was good enough, but now it gets to be easy, right? And so I'll speed up the last, the last part. You know, the after is as magnificent it is, as it the is. before. It is. If I can say magnificent to describe I love, the before. You I know? love, I love, yeah, I love it. So what, what ended up happening, it was pretty dark, right? And I still didn't really even understand what awareness was, right? Like I didn't understand that like I could choose differently in my life, right? Like I was still living in this world of like, this happened to me and this is just my life. Like I just have to be miserable and I have to suffer and, you know, I have to be a sheep right? Because I was in the military and like all this, but like, I always felt torn. Like I I was a natural leader. And it was interesting because my Marines loved me and my bosses hated me, which means I could never get in trouble. But like, I rubbed people the wrong way because things like never felt right. But it was me. I had so much dissonance in my body, right? Because like my brain believed things to be one way, but my life was so different. And it was like purgatory for, you know, a good 25, 30 years of my life. And so after I'd been back in Hawaii, I'd say about November, right around November, right? I'd been back for two months and I kind of like found my groove. My dad was doing good. My brother was doing good. And, and my value as a human was predicated on their ability to do good, right? Because I took on things that weren't mine, but things were good. And so, you know, I was doing good at work. I was training. Um, you know, my legs were getting better. They still hurt, but like I was just getting better and better. And like, I'm an overachiever and I push things way too hard. And I understand this, right? So when I say they're getting better and better, they're like, don't ever run too much, right? And so that was me then saying, okay, I'll just run 10 miles a day. Wow. Every day, right? And, you know, with no feeling in my legs, I pushed hard. Um, But things were good. Things were good. They felt good. I was talking to my dad every day. He was going to his appointments. He was doing OT and PT. And 
Um, we'd got some creative ideas for him to make money and I was helping him fix some of the business stuff. My brother was working. It was all great. And I remember um, December 5th of 2008, um, I called my dad and he's like, oh, I'm on my way to Dana-Farber. I'm like, oh, what are they doing? He's like, oh, they're doing a brain biopsy. They just want to check, you know, the size of the tumor. I said, okay, cool. And so I talked to him on the way and then he said, I'll call you when I'm done. I'm like, cool. So he called me. He was with his mother at the time. My dad was like a coffee addict, um, Dunkin' Donuts to be exact, medium light with three and a half sugars. Every time I go home, I go to his Dunkin' Donuts and I pour one out on his grave for him so he can get his coffee. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> You know, and I got to give it, my dad was one of the biggest personalities and presences in the world. Like I go back there and it's been 15 years and I go into the drive-thru at Dunkin' Donuts, doesn't matter what car I'm in and the same person or one of them knows me and they're like, do you want a coffee for your dad? Like that's kind of who my dad was. Not the one that you worked in though when you were like- 15. It was the one I worked in. <laughs> it was. And like, I want to, I want to say this because, you know, there was a part of me where I used to talk about my dad and make him the enemy. And then there was a part of me that I used to talk about my dad and make him the hero. And then now there's the part of me that I talk about my dad because he's my father and he was an amazing man that never had support to handle or process his trauma. You know, my father was an addict and I didn't know it most of the time, right? Or I pretended not to know it, but I could call my dad and be like, dad, I need $500 or I'm not gonna be able to pay my bills. And my dad would wire me money and go into withdrawals for three weeks without me even knowing just to support me. Like the, the guy had a heart of gold. He just never had support and known how to process or to be who he was. And so uh, December 5th, he calls me from the Dunkin' Donuts parking lot, said, hey, I'm with Graham. I'm like, okay, hi, Graham. Just a guy. And uh, he's like, it went good. They said everything was fine. And I'm like, cool. And then he's like, hold on, the phone's ringing. I said, okay, cool. So I, I held on. He clicked back over. He said, hey, they called me. They said they forgot something. They need me to come back. They want to review something. Again, he was super calm about it. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And he's like, all right, yeah. So uh, Graham started driving him back. And he's like, I'm about to go into a tunnel. I love you. I'll call you when I'm done. I'm like, all right, daddy, I love you. And as soon as I said, I love you, his phone cut out. Uh, 30 seconds later, he had a stroke. And he was brain dead five minutes later. And wow. so they called him because they found it abnormally an abnormality in the biopsy and it had spread a lot faster. It was a lot bigger than it was. And they called them back to come in immediately and they were five minutes away. And um, as soon as they started driving and the phone cut off, he had a stroke and his mother was driving, pulled over, they med flighted him and uh, called me and the Red Cross called me again. And I was his proxy. I was the only one. And so they said, listen, uh, your father had a stroke, he's brain dead, um, you're going to have to come back. And my boss told me I couldn't go, told me I couldn't go. And he didn't like me and I didn't really like him much. And so they said, you can't go, we're not approving your humanitarian transfer, blah, 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 which is against the orders and the rules. But it was, it was just drama all the time, like everything felt fucking hard. And I said, that's fine. I just need to fly home for a couple of days to support my family and, and figure out what to do. And they approved that. And so I got on a plane, I flew home. I got to the hospital on December 5th at 1130 PM. My brother was there. One of my sisters was there and my grandmother was there and my brother's best friend was there. And the nurses gave me a brief. They said everything. They said, you know, he's, he's gone. He's on a ventilator. Uh, he's completely brain dead, no activity, and you're his proxy, so you have to make the decisions. And my dad made me promise him that I was the only one to be his proxy because he didn't want any extreme measures. He just wanted to go when when it was his time. 
So I called all my friends and uh, had them all come say goodbye. And then um, I'll save the woo-woo story for our next podcast. But oh, yeah, I have to open that loop because it would take me too long to explain. Um, okay. But yeah, I. Uh, so you had an awesome woo-woo experience at the I d- bedside I of your dying I, father. I did. I did. Um, I did. So here's what's really interesting. We'll do part two another time. Yeah, we, we will. Um, here's what's really interesting. And so the six months that I took care of him was rough because I was dad and he was son. It was ugly, like physical blows sometimes, like to the point where we would almost hurt each other because we were so angry at each other and both trying to do the same thing, which was connect and not know how. And this is an important part that belongs in here. And so the Marine Corps told me I was going back to Hawaii on September 30th, which is my brother's birthday. And uh, so September 28th was my last night at home because then I had to drive to the airport the next day. That night before I left, for whatever reason, I decided to just confront my dad and be like, what the fuck, basically. And then my dad confronted me with a, well, who the fuck do you think you are being my parent, right? And uh, it turned into a seven-hour fight. I'm talking broken dishes, holes in the wall. Like, it was ugly. And I'd never put my hands on my father, and I refused to, even though he put his hands on me. It was ugly. And then what ended up happening is we fought so much that we basically both passed out in his bed. And I ended up spooning my dad for eight hours. The next day, it was like we were two different human beings. I felt like I knew my dad for the first time as like a man, as a person, like not a facade or the stories, but like just as like a truly connected parent. I think he knew, quite frankly, because after that, he spent the next two months making peace with every single past person, mistake, everything. I was in the hospital. And then everybody came to see him. And then I said, okay, all you guys got to go home. It was like 3.30 in the morning. And um, I told the nurses, I said, okay, um, you know, it's time. Right. And so they came and they gave him morphine, you know, to handle the pain. And then um, they told me he was completely brain dead and that he couldn't breathe. And they pulled him off life support and he started breathing on his own and his blood pressure normalized. Oh, Jesus. And, And he was completely stable on his own. That spent me into like a three-hour rabbit hole of <laughs> fear and anxiety, and I stayed there by his side, and they're like, no, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. They convinced me to go, like to get some rest, and they said they'll call me and, you know, things like that, and so I think I left at like 5 a.m., and then um, I got home at like 7 a.m. because it was a far away. My brother was there. His best friend was there. His girlfriend was there, and I'll tell you the woo-woo story. <laughs> First off, thank you for letting me share this story. I don't think I've ever shared in this much detail, ever. And I wanted to share the succinct version, but this feels better. And uh, You're very welcome. So I was a pretty, like, agnostic or more like atheist. Like, I didn't believe in anything. Like, I just believed in being disconnected <laughs> and checking boxes and being insecure. And so I never really was spiritual. Religion was forced on me as a child, you know, forced Catholic schools, things like that. And I never went well. And so I didn't really believe in anything. I, I kind of believed in God, you know, because when you see people get killed in front of you, it tends to open your eyes a little bit, but like still not really. And so we had left. I went home 
And then, you know, my dad used to love going to the movies with us. Like the movies was our thing. My dad and I would go to the movies, my dad, my brother and I. And so I looked at my brother, John, his best friend and his girlfriend, Kelsey. And I said, you, we should go to the movies tonight to celebrate dad, you know, like, and he was still fine, stabilized. We're talking like 18 hours in now. So we go to the movies and I don't remember the movie, but the movie started at 8.15, 8.15 PM. So we get to the movie theater at 7.45 and we're like five minutes from the hospital because we were staying close. 7.45. Um, before we went to the movie, I went and checked in on him. They said he's normal. We're still managing his pain. You know, thank you for being patient. We're sorry. Like this is what we can do. I said, that's fine. And I went in there and I said, listen, I said, I love you. I said, you need to stop fucking with me. <laughs> to your dad. Yeah. And I was like, I love you. And I said, I'm really scared. I really... I really don't understand that. Like I, I don't, and I'm just trying to take care of everybody and I don't know what to do. Right. And, but I'm gonna take the kids to the movies for you. And so I walked out and they're like, he's completely fine. You know, still stable. Get to the movies. We sit down about 7:45. movie starts at 8 15, 7 45, black screen, 7 50, black screen, 8 PM, black screen, 8 10, black screen. And at this point, about 10 people had gone to the movie theater and be like, hey, it's not working. It's not working. We don't see previews. We don't see previews, right? They come in. They're like, hey, guys, we apologize. We're working on it. It's not working. It's not working. Movie's supposed to start at 8.15. 8.20, still nothing. 8.21, my phone rings and says, um, your father uh, is gone. And at 8.22, the movie started. <laughs> And I told the kids and I said, we're going to go. Dad's gone. And I walked over there and um, I let them say their goodbyes. And I had a conversation with him. And um, the nurses said every time like we were close or in the room, his vitals would be completely stabilized. But then the moment we would leave, they would get a regular and they're like, Oh, and they're like, but you just kept coming back and they'd be regular. And she's like, whatever it was that you said to him was almost like his permission slip, but he never wanted a funeral. He never wanted anybody to see him suffer. He never wanted to show weakness. And so like, he literally would not go when any of us were near him. And that movie theater was like a very eye-opening, conscious, connected experience for me where I started to really understand some things differently. And, um, you know, my dad's favorite number was 13. His favorite day was Friday the 13th. And he passed away on December 6th. We're not from like a big town, like 10,000 people, right? Like funerals aren't like a, a dime a dozen. Like they don't happen every day. And uh, we called the funeral director and we're like, we need to make arrangements. He's like, the only day we have open is the 13th. Wow. Like, okay, got it. And then my dad also told me he didn't want a funeral. He didn't want any of that. And I was like, well, you don't have a choice because it's for everybody else, not for you, right? We yeah. have to celebrate your life. I love you. Um, <laughs> and so random weather in New England, Massachusetts, December 13th, temperature 65 degrees. Wow. December 13th, right? So we'd literally go into the church for the service, had a military honors, you know, 21 gun salute. We go into the church. 68 degrees. It's like a 1 p.m. service, right? We're in there for an hour. We come outside an hour later. It's 12 degrees and snowing. Literally drove to the cemetery. It was like almost impossible to have a service, like gusting winds. My dad's sister was in the limo with me who they didn't really get along. She got out of the limo and tripped and fractured her ankle. Getting out of the limo there, 
it was supposed to be like an hour service. It was like six minutes because everybody was freezing. Nobody wanted to be there. Literally did the entire service. I put everybody in their car, sent them away. And I wanted to stay there with my dad. Like I just wanted to stay there. And so I spent probably three hours there. And uh, as soon as everybody was gone, within 10 minutes, it was sunny out again. And the <laughs> snow was gone. Wow. And I just kept looking at him and I was like, you're an ass. Like, I love you, <laughs> but like, why is it always going to be your way, bro? Like, and so that was December 6th of 2008. And somehow it all fell on me. So my grandmother didn't really do anything. My sister, one of them no-showed the funeral and the other one said they couldn't help I talked to my mom for the first time because I saw her at the funeral. So basically it was on me to handle his affairs, pay off his drug debt, do all of that. And so literally I sold every last thing that I owned and made everything right. My brother was 19, but had nowhere to go. didn't really have a job. And so I was like, oh, I guess I have to adopt my brother and move him to Hawaii with me. So it took me about three months to get, it was my grandmother's house in order, get all the blood off the ceiling, the carpets, clean the house you know, seven dumpsters to get rid of hoarding and trash, settled debts, you know, surrender vehicles that were repoed and things like that. And uh, wow, to the a year to the day, March 5th, 2009, a year from when the first seizure, we flew back to Hawaii. Just wasn't a good space, like never worked, never did the processing, like just stuffed and stuffed and stuffed and stuffed. Got to Hawaii, got back there. I went against my boss's orders. And so there's a whole lot of bullshit. I got in trouble. And then they're like, we're sending you to Camp Pendleton. And I was like, okay. And so um, sent my brother out here a couple of weeks early, bought a house sight unseen, got here. And within three months of being they're like, oh, you're going to Afghanistan. And um, so now we're talking 2010, uh, 2009, no processing, no therapy. Now I'm just stacked of like basically 28 years of stack on stack on stack on stack on stack. I was married and divorced in that time. That was like the smallest blip on the radar, but that's all happened. Then I had my wow. brother living with me. He was 19, didn't have a job, didn't have any money. And all I had was two air mattresses and an empty apartment. I didn't have anything else because uh, I'd sold it all. And so basically I had to start over. Came to California started doing workups for deployment. And then in uh, 2010 or 20, 2009, I was back in Afghanistan and uh, I ended up having seven concussions over the span of two years through trainings and bad injuries in country. So I had traumatic brain injury. I had fluid on my brain, bleeding on my brain. Afghanistan was a rough deployment for me. Which I can't even imagine what that means, but we'll just leave it at that for the moment. But it was It was dark. Everything was the worst it's ever been. My bulimia was the worst it's ever been. My self-harm was the worst it's ever been. I basically never processed any work or trauma, but yet I'm leading 55 Marines every day and pretending I have my shit together. And it was, it was a pretty dark deployment. Lots of things happened that you know, took me a long time to process. Uh, one of my Marines lost his marbles, wrote my name on a round and stuck a rifle in my mouth, told me he was gonna kill me. And uh, things like that got pretty normal out there. And so, my only solace was I found a book about paleo and of all things. <laughs> CrossFit. And so all I could do out there was work out. And I started reading this book about paleo, props to Rob Wolf. I was like, oh, this is really simple. This is the best way for me to control my bulimia. I can just eat like this and then I can kind of eat as much as I want, but maybe I won't purge. And I started eating paleo. And then I was like, I want to try this CrossFit thing. And I loved it because it was a challenge and I got to teach it to myself. Right. And so 
I started CrossFitting out there and I started eating as clean as I could with what I had. And um, some crazy things started to happen in my body. My cravings went away. My urges to purge went away hormonally. Like I felt like I was more balanced. I lost 15 pounds that I didn't know I had to lose because I was already pretty ripped. My energy was better. My performance was better. And I feel like CrossFit was kind of like my cathartic out. Like I would train like six hours a day um, while doing like Marine Corps martial arts and like really just like process physically emotions out of my body. And um, I ended up becoming a very, very good CrossFitter, like, you know, top couple hundred in all of SoCal. Also, do you feel like the physical um, activity or the working out took on a different flavor for you at that point? Because you it was hadn't... Just, well, at the time it was a new addiction. But you also said that you felt like you were processing things through. I was. I was. I, I was. I feel like what had really happened is that, like, when my dad died, I still never had a day because I had to handle the affairs. My brother, my yeah. family three more months, get back to Hawaii, then get back to Maya, have a month to move to California, get to California. And then I literally was there for a week before I was on pre-deployment workups for like six months, right? So like no space whatsoever. When I got to Afghanistan, it was the most space I'd had in years. Right. And I'd never known how to be in a relationship with myself ever because I never had one. I always had a checkbox or to prove something or a distraction. And so working out there became therapy because it was the one thing that I found that I felt comfortable being with myself, even though I wasn't just being still, but it was kind of like a form of meditation for me. Yes. And so I fell in love with it and I actually didn't fall in love with it to like prove anybody wrong or be the best. Like it was for me and I really was mm. enjoying the growth and the, and the challenge. And so. So do you feel like that's when your healing started? That's when it started. Yeah. So yeah. I, I feel like it really started um, when I changed my diet. You know, I had already been diagnosed with celiac disease, and so I already knew that, but I couldn't tell the military about it because I would get discharged, so I had to just pretend and eat their food anyways. Oh, my God. Um, and so, yeah, but like eating paleo out there, like just following some principles and getting into some structure and, and filling my tank was really supportive. And so, yeah, I started to, I started to heal. Like I was at 0. 0. 0. Like glimpse. percent Yeah, like yeah. just a glimpse, right? <laughs> and so this deployment, the deployment was good and bad. It was good because I started to discover who I was, like who I was, not the story, not the past, who I wanted to be. In that was also the double-edged sword of discovering who I was um, since I'd never really known. And then um, I experienced a whole lot of death. I've lost 28 Marines to suicide, three of which I've witnessed. Oh my gosh. Um, their, their names are on that plaque right next to me because I remember. It was rough. It was rough. And so I was pretty numb to death, which meant I was pretty numb to my dad's because I just learned how to compartmentalize and become a robot. So I didn't have to feel. And so I came home from Afghanistan. I was pretty fucked up. Wouldn't sleep for six, seven days at a time because of migraines. Uh, I would wake up in night sweats three to four times a night. And I'm not talking like gentle, like I'm talking completely stripped the bed four times a night, like drenched from head to toe. I could wring my shirts out. Spatial unaware flashbacks, nightmares where uh, my roommate would wake me up and have to literally spend five minutes convincing me I wasn't in Afghanistan anymore. Like the, the PTSD mixed with the traumatic brain injury was like, 
it was like a death sentence, right? And then, you know, they put you on medication, lowers your blood pressure so you can't stand up. And then the side effects are more suicidal tendencies, even though it's supposed to be preventing them, right? Then they give you as much pain pills as you want on top of it, right? So it was a perfect storm. It was like 2011. I basically realized I hated the military <laughs> and I hated in general where I was and what I was doing. I had no goal. Like Which my- is progress to oh, actually totally. have a feeling and hating your life is well, progress. One of, one of the best pieces of therapy I ever got was from a, a psychologist and I would continually bitch and moan. And I'm like, I'm just dead. Like, I don't have feelings. I don't have compassion. I don't have empathy. Like, I'm a horrible person. Like, I can't be fixed. I can't be fixed. And I'll never forget it because it was one of the most powerful, simplistic statements ever. And she looked me dead in the eye and she said, numb is a feeling. (laughs) It was like a mind-blowing wedge of like a pattern interrupt, right? So I come back. I'm stationed at Pendleton. And I'm doing my, you know, medical stuff a couple months later and I go in and one of the doctors looks at me and said, listen, I hate to tell you this, but I'm going to have to submit you for a med board. You're no longer fit for service. And I was like, 12 years of my life, you're out of your mind. No, I can make it eight, right? Like my goal was to do 20 and hand out smiley face stickers at Walmart. That was my literally- You weren't like, thank God. <laughs> I was I, like, I'm thinking that in my mind, thank God, but you weren't thinking that. <laughs> well, yeah, but I had no transferable skills. I'm like, how am I going to make money? Like, what am I going to do? Like, where do I go back to? Like the town that I know nobody and have nothing or the house that I own here and I don't have a job and I fucking hate what I do in the military and I don't want to do it and I can't work for anybody because I I just can't. And I had no idea. I didn't even know what an entrepreneur was. Like I had no clue. And so the one reprieve I had is that when I started feeling good in Afghanistan eating that way, I said, I need to continue to eat this way. But when I came home, I'd never cooked before in my entire life. And so I was like, I need to teach myself how to cook so I can eat this way. Because in 2009 and 10, paleo wasn't a thing. Like gluten-free wasn't a thing, right? And so I was like, all right, I'm going to teach myself how to cook. But I was still struggling with bulimia and pain pill addiction and everything else. And I was like, I got to beat this. Like, I don't want to go to therapy. I'm just like, I don't want to be this anymore. I don't want to be sick. I don't want to be disgusting. I literally is like, I vowed my life to not end up as my parents. And yet I'm doing it exactly like they did. And I'm justifying it because I'm not doing it in the open. I'm addicted to being bulimic. I'm addicted to pain pills. I'm addicted to self-sabotage. I'm addicted to self-harm. I just didn't do heroin and Coke. I did physical fists and narcotics that were prescribed to me. And I started basically becoming aware of the cognitive dissonance that I created. So I started becoming self-aware of the lies that I've been telling myself and using for survival over and over. And so I said, okay, I don't want to be bulimic anymore. I want to be healed. So I'm going to cook every day. I'm going to teach myself how to cook. And I'm just going to post a recipe on Facebook every day. The world will have no idea why I'm doing it, but it's my public declaration of accountability that I'm, if I'm cooking this meal and posting it, I'm eating clean and I'm not going to purge. And And your first significant relationship with social media. That was it. That was the first time I literally got Facebook for that. And y'all, you heard his, you heard some of his after story in the intro. So I find this a very poignant. Yeah. And so then I was like, okay, cool. Well, I just started posting um, and I made a page because I was like, I'll just post it. Didn't even have a name for the page. I just literally put like George Bryant's food or something. 
And then I would use the notes section. And every time I would make a recipe or learn it, I would put it in the notes section and post it. This is what I made today. This is what I made today. And for like a month, two months, I did it every single day, every single day. And um, kind of gave you purpose. <laughs> yeah, it did. It gave me something to focus on. Now I was still working full time. I would get up at 3.30 in the morning. Now, where were you working? Because you were done Pendleton. with the military. No, I was still in the military. Okay. And so I'm still full-time active duty Marine, except they're submitting me for a potential med okay. board, which okay. takes like eight to 10 months potentially. Oh, geez. Wow. And so, yeah, it's like really bad purgatory. So I'd get up at 3.30. <laughs> I'd leave my house at 3.45 a.m. to be to work at 4.45 to start physical training that I was told I shouldn't be doing and couldn't do because I was on a med board, but then told by my bosses, if I didn't do it, I'd get in trouble. Even though I was like a very highly ranked staff and seal, like I wasn't like a junior Marine, like I was a pretty high up in the chain of command. And so I would work from, I'd get up at three 30 and then I would get home at 8 PM every night, five days a week. And then in that time, that two hours at home every night, I would manage to cook a recipe and post about it okay. and then repeat the process. Right. Okay. And so um, I documented it all. And about two months later, I went from having seven friends that liked my page, about 150. And like this 150 is, liked my page. Now, when did Civilized Caveman, like when did you come up with that name and the book right and the whole, right, right now. now? Okay. So, <laughs> Sorry, I thought I was jumping no, in. No, you're good. No. And so then um, 2011, April of 2011, April of 2011, or March of 2011. You're so good with dates. Like, I don't know when shit happened to me. Yeah, March, March of 2011. <laughs> I had been doing this now consistently for maybe like three months, right? Working out, training. I was really good at CrossFit. I felt amazing. Yet they're like, you're the worst you've ever been. We're kicking you out, right? Like, you have bleeding on your brain and fluid on your brain and like really severe TBI. And like, oh, I'm like, yeah, you, you also told me you want to cut my legs off, so I don't believe you. So... Wow. I'm just going to keep going. And so I'm posting, I'm posting, I'm posting, get about 150 people. And of course, like these are people that know me and they don't know why I'm doing it. But they're like, oh, this is cool. This is cool. Right. And, um, and then someone's like, you should start a blog. I'm like, what's a blog? I'm like, well, it's like a website, like blogger.com. I'm like, yeah, I don't know what that is. And they're like, you need to make a website. I'm like, why would I make a website? They're like, so you can put your recipes on. I'm like, they're on the notes section on Facebook. What do you need? They're like, they're impossible to read, bro. Can you just, here, I'll make one for you. <laughs> And this person um, who I just barely knew is like, I'll make you a website. So they went to blogger.com, made me a website. And they're like, we need a name. And I was like, for what? And they're like, it's a business. I'm like, I know it's a website, whatever. And so I was like, I started Googling paleo things and paleo things. And I was like, oh, caveman was taken, boom, boom, boom. And then I had this bright idea to name it Civilized Caveman Cooking Creations. Good luck spelling that, dot com. <laughs> um, not the best business idea but i ended up naming it civilized caveman cooking creations and i'll never forget the first logo i wrapped a bundle of wheat with c4 and the c4 was civilized caveman cooking creations because apparently alliterations are cute but they're not smart business moves they made me a blog on blogger and so i then basically just started posting the same recipes that i was on facebook but putting them on the blog and then sharing them on facebook and so then I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And yeah, everyone, flash us forward. I'm excited to hear. Yeah, Fine. so this only took about four months. I'd say that was April of 2011, May, June, July. About July 2011, I had about 1,000 fans on Facebook that I had no idea where they came from. And everyone's like, you're a food blogger. I'm like, I'm a food blogger. Cool. <laughs> and I was like, I'm still learning how to cook, so I'm just documenting it all. And I was like, well, I'm eating paleo because I had celiac disease, right? And so boom, boom, boom. And then 
I was like, oh, I'm a food blogger. So I guess I just get to make recipes and post them online. I don't know how to make money. I don't know any of this, right? So I have to teach myself all of it, web design, affiliate marketing, email marketing, social media marketing, all these things. So you started, so, cause you went from like, oh, someone, I don't know, built me a website and I'm just making this. No. So what point did you say, okay, I need to teach myself this stuff because I feel like this After is he a- built me the website. Cause I hated okay. that I didn't know how to use it. Okay. Uh, and so I needed an outlet anyways. It's the first time I had an outlet in my life, like a creative outlet. And so basically I was working two full-time jobs. I was a Marine. And then at any moment of off time, I would just make recipes and post them. And uh, I did that both for a year, Marine and just posting daily. And as I was posting daily, I was literally posting a recipe on the website, posting on Facebook and posting on Instagram. And that was it. And I had learned social media through this process. And then March or April of 20... 13, right? So I've been doing it now for about a year, year and a half. And my med board, they're like, hey, it's going through. As soon as we get dates, like you're going to be medically separated. Well, separated doesn't mean I get paid for the rest of my life. It means after 12 years, I get nothing out the door. Wow. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Wow. Retirement plan. I didn't plan. realize that. You and get so, injured here and now we don't yeah. have to pay you anymore. Now the VA pays me now, but the DOD, like the government, I wasn't retired. Okay. I was just like I out see. the door. Um, and so then um, they're like, hey, your thing's moving forward. And at this point, I've been going for about a year and a half and I didn't realize, but I was consistent every day and I didn't know how to run a business. I didn't know what internet marketing was. And so literally I was just giving value for free every single day, all day for a year and a half. And so at this point, I had about 9,000 Facebook fans, about 6,000 Instagram fans, and I was getting about 100,000 people a month on my website. And I didn't know anything I, like, other than what I taught, right? And then somebody asked me to go speak at a paleo conference. <laughs> and so I did. And I met a friend there. He was good at internet marketing and things like that. But then one of the fans was like, God, I wish you had a cookbook. And I was like, oh, I ain't doing that. And they're like, no, 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 like take all your recipes and save them in a Word document so we have them in one place. And I was like, so I did that and I sent it to them. I'm there. And they're like, no, 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 we want to pay you. Like, why do you want to pay me? They're all the free recipes on my website. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, but it helps that you put them in order. I'm like, okay. I'm like, what do you want to pay me? And they're like, well, uh, we've seen digital cookbooks sell for like $27. What do you think about $27? I'm like, fine, cool. Yeah, here. I was like, wait, but how do I take your money? <laughs> And they're like, oh, you can upload it to ClickBank. And I was like, what's that, right? And like, literally, this is how I learned digital marketing. And so like, I was so dumb, Lisa, I uploaded a Word document to ClickBank. I didn't even make it a PDF. <laughs> like, that was it. Even I know that. No. <laughs> and I called, it, uh, I called it Caveman Feast. And so this was March of 2012. Uh, no, March of 2013. My email list was like 900 people. My social was like combined 14,000 people and I did one post, one, one post on each social, one email to my list and a blog post. And on the first day for $27, I made $5,200. Oh my gosh. What's the math on that? How many cookbooks? Um, I think it was like 200. Wow. And I made the equivalent of two months of my pay in a day. And I was like, well, that's weird. I don't know why people bought this. I don't even know how they bought it. That's fine. So I go to bed. I go to work the next day. I'm sitting in my office and I was like, oh, I'll just open the ClickBank app. I opened it up 14 grand. Wow. Day two. And I was like, uh, <laughs> and like, I thought it was broken. Like literally I was like, I've set something up wrong. There's no way like whatever. Boom, boom, boom. 
I didn't know that I was one of the first paleo eBooks to exist and that somehow in two years, I became one of the top five paleo blogs without even knowing what I was doing because I was consistent every day and I actually supported people out trying to sell or steal or take from them, right? Which is thus the foundation of your ethic scale ethically yeah, <laughs> philosophy yeah. and what you've helped businesses around the world make billions of dollars on. I love many, hearing the birth story of it. Many billions. You like and fell then, into it. <laughs> and so then I was like, okay. And at this point, like I was still scared I was going to get kicked out and not have anything to fall back on, but it was like a switch for me. And I was like, there's a different game I can play. Nice. Like, I can do something different. And at this point I was like, I fucking hate the military. Let's get out. Right. And I was like, when's my board going through? When's my board going through? Right. And like, you can't force that, but I was pretty confident. And so then I think on day five of just those single posts, I'd made 50 grand. Oh my gosh. And which is probably more than your, your annual. It was more than my annual. And, um, and I got a, from a twenty-seven dollar cookbook. Yeah, and I got a little cocky, and like I started talking back to my bosses, forgetting I was still in the military, and you know, so I got in some trouble because uh, I was like checked out at this point. I was like done, done. But yeah, continued that, and so June, June, yeah. So three months later, I basically stopped going to work, and this is me being fully transparent with everybody. I hated it. Like I just wanted to get kicked out at this point. I stopped going to work, and then my boss called and said. Uh, you need to be in my office Monday morning in your uniform and you're getting basically in trouble, like actual paperwork, blah, 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 blah. So I get into the office early and I love this part. I get into the office early and uh, I have my uniforms all set up and I get there at like 5 a.m., right? And they didn't get there till seven. And I just happened to open my computer and I logged into the online software, Marine Online. I was like, God, I wish I had an update on my med board. Well, I looked and it said I'd gotten out of the military four days early. Or, oh, four days earlier before that. And I was like, wait, I'm out. <laughs> what? So I called the dude at S1. I said, Hey, am I out? He's like, Oh yeah, bro. You're out. As soon as you sign this paperwork, I said, are you there? He's like, yeah, I ran over, signed it. And I was literally officially out and nobody knew. <laughs> nobody knew except me. And, uh, I went back to my office <laughs> and I walked up to my uniform and I literally drew a massive X. I like drew with a Sharpie on my uniform and I walked over and hung it on my boss's door. And I walked out the door and I was walking out. He was walking. I said, where are you going? I said, you can go fuck yourself. And he said, excuse me. I said, oh, I'm not a Marine anymore. Sorry. And I'm out. And I walked away. And that was literally the last time I was ever on a military base as a Marine. I was out. I went home. And I basically was like, okay, I made enough that I have 12 months, 12 months where I don't have to make a dollar and I can survive as I figure this out. And so I literally for the first 30 days after I was out, I worked about 18 hours a day and I had a rule that I wasn't allowed to read a book or take a course. I had to figure it all out on my own and I wanted to teach it to myself. And so I literally tried things every day and taught myself. I taught myself cooking. I taught myself food photography. I taught myself website design. I taught myself email, social, digital, all of it. And I tried and I tried and I tried. And, um, you know, now at this point, once I gave it the full effort, I added 50,000 fans to my Facebook, you know, 100,000 fans to my Instagram in about mm, six, seven months. And then somebody was like, hey, we'd love it if you had an app. And I'm like, okay. And so at this point, in full disclosure, I'd grossed over a million dollars on that ebook. Oh my and, gosh. And I had nothing left because I didn't know how to manage money. And so, yeah, gross and net are two very different things, but that's besides the point. <laughs> 
Yeah. I've learned some of these lessons. And so then I was like, someone's like, I want an app. And I was like, you can make apps? Like what? They're like, yeah. So I went on YouTube and I taught myself how to make an app. And uh, I wireframed this app. I found a developer. I said, listen, I can't pay you, but I'll rev share with you. I'll give you 33% of the app if you maintain it and I'll launch it. We took that entire ebook and we made it an app. We added shopping lists and we integrated with the Apple Watch. We were the first recipe apps to like actually track macros with your heart rate. Launched the app to my existing audience told them, hey, these are all the same recipes that are in the ebook that you already paid for, but they're in the app, right? Launched the app, got featured by Apple's the top health app of 2015. Wow. And uh, hit number four in the entire app store for six weeks. So I was beating Angry Birds. I was beating Disney. I was beating you name it. All organically, no paid media, just being in relationships with my customers. And so then someone's like, you need a real cookbook. And I was like, okay, how do I do that? And they're like, you need a publisher. So I literally went to a paleo conference and walked up to a publisher and I was like, are you Irish? And he's like, yeah. I said, uh, I just want to introduce myself. And he said, well, who are you? I'm like, well, I'm your next New York Times bestselling author. I just figured you should know who I am before you publish my book. And he was like, who the fuck are you? And I was like, I just told you, and I'm not joking, you're going to publish my book. And so that was how I found a publisher. We started negotiating and he's like, you're never going to be a New York Times bestseller. Like you don't know the numbers, like the traffic, like it's a good goal, but you're going to have to do this. And I didn't like that. So I obsessively spent nine months developing a book launch strategy that I made up off the top of my head based on what I trusted my intuition on, wrote the book, taught myself food photography, took 17,000 photos for the book, did it all. And then, um, basically designed and planned this book launch strategy. Just so you can prove that guy wrong. Yeah. And to prove to myself that I could (laughs) do it. June 10th of 2014, the book came out. June, that was a Tuesday, June 17th, I got a phone call and he said, I can't believe it. You made the New York Times. (laughs) And I said, what number? And he said, 14th. And he said, I didn't think you'd do it. And, um, you know, congrats, you're probably only going to be on for one week. And I was like, nope, next week, 11, next week, nine, next week, seven, next week, five, next week, four. And then I maintained four. And then I hit the monthly list at four. And then 22 weeks in a row, I sold over 175,000 copies, which puts me in like the top 0.0001% of all nonfiction books. And I did it without spending a dollar. Then that's when I realized like I really knew what I was doing and I should do more of it. And uh, then I just kept running the blog, built social, ended up with like a million followers, aggregated across. I went live every day, you know, hundreds of millions okay. of views. So, so okay, I'm going to stop you because... Because uh, I was going to end it all right there. There's like two more lines and we're done. Oh, uh, well, I don't want to end it all because what I also want to acknowledge is like parallel to the story is your healing or not healing journey, yeah, right? Yeah. And then, you know, the chapter that you're in now with wife and kids and which I, I want you know, I wanted people to get a glimpse of, I'm, I'm going back and forth about this should be a two part episode. Cause it's just- well, we, we, we can, I think we should, but uh, here's what I, here's what I want to say. And I'm going to, okay. I have to speak about them in lanes. Cause it's hard to talk about them both at the same time. Well, and, I, and I can, and you have a mode, like I can, your whole body language change. Yeah. As soon as you start talking about your optics and your clicks and your fans and your, you know, uh, all that. And, and so it- here's what, here's, what's interesting is that that business civilized caveman, that business saved my life like legitimately saved my life. And I started it to hold myself accountable by giving to other people. 
I also learned very valuable lessons that by giving to other people is where really like true healing and acceptance comes. But the problem was, is that I kept trying to write chapters for a book that needed a conclusion. And so no matter- and figuratively. Yeah. And no matter what, Caveman was never going to be my goal. I didn't, I hated cooking. I hated cooking, right? And yet I somehow became a very successful food blogger and I hated cooking, right? But I was successful in that business because my come from was insecurity. My come from was fear and scarcity, right? And so it just always felt like a chore. There was we're no- in survival mode like you there, had Yeah, and life. there was there was no harmony, right? And it was like, it was fun, but really I had replaced my physical addictions now with emotional addictions, validation and dopamine emotional cheating, like inappropriate, like completely disconnected, like dishonored from anybody in the world. The only relationships I had were through phones and keyboards, right? And mm-hmm. it was me hiding in plain sight now, of like me collecting evidence and I was doing everything because I wanted people to see me, right? Because now I had just basically taken a broken foundation and I put a massive magnifying glass on it with success that actually made it worse. And the more money I made, the more I hated it. And the more I went down deep, dark spirals and everything. And so in that time, I met my wife on November 3rd of 2013. And so right on like the transition period out and um, she scared the shit out of me. So I ignored her for six months and she pursued me and because she really scared me because she's just such an amazing grounded, connected woman. And she saw me, not my story. And that Mm. scared me because I didn't even know who that was. And so that business so kept going, right? So caveman was running. I met my wife and all of this was happening. And I was narcissistic tendencies, sociopathic tendencies. I was projecting pain and survival on those around me. I was hurting those closest to me, emotionally abusive, repeating patterns, caused a lot of pain, a lot of pain. And my wife stood by my side and stood for me a lot and, and more than she should have left me a few times. And, and uh, so caveman's running. It's 2014, caveman's running, book tours out, my relationships on the rocks, my daughter's on the rocks, myself's on the rocks. Like, I feel like I'm on this razor's edge of- How old is your daughter? My daughter is 15 now. She's my bonus daughter. So I came into her life when she was seven. I just felt like I was walking on this razor's edge of a tightrope and no matter which side it went, like it was going to hurt. Like there was no making it across because my feet were getting cut as I walked. And uh, Lindsay, Lindsay broke up with me, very rightfully so, and told me she never wanted to speak to me again, rightfully so. It was a catalyst to start doing personal development work for trainings that she had told me about. And I signed up for the trainings and uh, I did them all as hard and fast as I could played the game, but it kind of opened my window into possibilities, distinctions, you know, traumas, past healings, you know, I started learning processes and things that allowed me to heal and, and start closing chapters and, and things like that. And so it created momentum. And, you know, my relationship with Lindsay was on the rocks. It was non-existent because I needed to work on me. She was 20 years ahead of me emotionally and she held that space. So I started the work. And so it was interesting because as I started doing personal development work, uh, the more of me that I discovered and healed, the more of me didn't want to touch that business and be anywhere near it. Right. And um, I felt like I started that business from a very broken place. And then I expected to be able to make it healthy and run it, even though the entire paradigm was like disgusting and insecure and things like that. And so I basically kept doing work 
for about mm, two years while running that business. And by running that business, meaning I kept going wider and wasting more money to the point where I was losing about 50 grand a month. I would just lie to myself every day and I'd convince my wife, no, I'm doing this differently. I'm doing this differently. And I would pay courses and hire coaches and people to do things, but no plan and nothing. And I was really just trying to pay my way into failure. I didn't want it to succeed, but I also didn't want to put in the work. And so it was a very, very, and you didn't want to let it in. It was hard to let it. And I didn't want to let it know. Cause I was, it was my identity. It was my addiction, right? Like it was my safety zone. Like, Oh, I don't like what's happening at home. I can go connect with people online. It's going to tell me it's all okay. And allows me to advocate my leadership as like a human. Right. And that continued for two years of me checking boxes and just living for dopamine and validation where literally it was almost like it was average about 30 grand in the hole a month. It, it was like the bane of my existence. And also it was all I knew. I was like, what else am I going to do? Like, I was like, I don't want to turn this around. I fucking hate it. I want nothing to do with it. Right. But I was then pretending to be in it every day. And it ended up being uh, about three and a half, four years ago, Lindsay, my amazing wife was seven and a half, eight months pregnant. And I say we had about three weeks left before I lost it all. And that means, you know, bankruptcy, everything gone. And I got invited to a room. A friend invited me to a mastermind. I didn't even know what a mastermind was at the time. Invited me to a mastermind. And uh, I said, I don't even know why you want me here. Like, I don't belong with these people. And he said, yeah, you do. And one day you'll see that. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, shut up. And then I sat in that room for 12 hours and listened and listened and listened. And then right near the end of the day, someone was like, anybody else have anything that they want to share? And I was like, yeah, this is all fucking bullshit. And you guys sit here and all happy Dory. And I can't lie to you. Like, I hate my life. I'm losing 30, 40 grand a month. My wife's eight months pregnant, going to pop at any moment. I have no idea how to support her and what's going to happen tomorrow. And that's where I am. And I just kind of threw it on the table in front of like some of the most respected peers that I could have. And I mean, big ones. It was really interesting because I wasn't judged. I wasn't made wrong. And I also wasn't rewarded and like, I didn't get really much like empathy. I got a lot of compassion, right? But nobody was enrolled in my story. Like none of them. It was a room full of successful people. And like, that's a good story, but we're not engaging with that or giving you anything, right? And it just so happened that after that comment, about an hour later, somebody asked a question about Facebook. And, <laughs> and I mean, these are all digital marketers. And I said, hey, listen, I said, I don't want to be disrespectful. I said, but that's a really stupid question and you're not going to like the answer or the results. And they're like, excuse me? And I was like, can I just show you? Like, yeah. And so I was like, do you mind if I use the whiteboard? And they're like, no. So I walked up there in like five minutes. like, And then Tucker Max looked at me and said, shut up, stop. Slow down, do it again. I'm recording this. And I was like, okay. I spent like 45 minutes teaching them like how I added 300,000 fans when everybody said the algorithm was broken and how I got one video to make a half a million dollars without an ad or a call to action, things like this. This is where your consulting business was born. Yep. 22 people in the room. I spent an hour answering that question and 20 of them hired me in the next week. And I called my wife and I said, baby, I know it's been hard. I think life's going in a different direction right now and I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm clear and I'm aware on how I'm going to support you and our family. I'm going to do something different. And so I started consulting and I didn't know what a consultant was actually. Someone's like, you know, do you consult? I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, do you teach this to people? I'm like, oh yeah, I just taught you. And they're like, 
well, yeah, but where do we pay you? I'm like, why would you pay me? I'm just teaching it to you. And that I, this was a whole new concept to me. Like I tell people I'm only successful cause I'm dumb. Like I didn't know any other way. And so when somebody's like, go, I'm like as tenacious and committed as possible. And I go all the way in and I don't have a preconceived yeah. notion of what it looks like. Cause I've never done it before. And so I'm just like, let's go figure it out. And so I started consulting and, um, didn't know what to charge, didn't know what to do. And then I said, as a team of one, I was going to build 20 people's funnels, run their ads, do blah, blah, blah. That lasted for about two weeks before I almost died. But I made a few of them a couple hundred grand in three days. Then they gave me some rev shares and I, I bought a cash infusion that would last about six months, but I still wouldn't let the company go. Still wouldn't let the company go. And then it became even worse and worse and worse. And then I, I took my first trip to the jungle uh, with a shaman to do some more healing. And at this point, I'd already done three years of EMDR, you know, group therapy, prolonged exposure. I'd done MDMA assisted psychotherapy for my PTSD. I had done breath work and movements and, you know, retreats and things like this. And so um, I went to the jungle to drink some ayahuasca uh, with some beautiful shamans. And that rocked my world in the best way possible. And I came home did what I wanted to do and not what everybody else wanted me to do. Lindsay wanted me to sell it. Other people on Mediva and I came home and went online. I called one person. You might know him, Josh Trent. And I said, uh, do you want a business? He said, yeah. I said, do you want to own caveman? And he said, yeah. I said, I mean, like, I'm going to give it to you. No questions asked. Seven figure business is yours. Everything. And he's like, yeah. He's like, well, when I'm like now, and he's like, when do you want to be in it again? I said, never. And so my team transitioned to him in a couple of days and I said one more post and I did a video with him telling people I was gone and I deleted social media overnight, all of it, off Instagram, off Facebook, deleted my Facebook, changed my number, changed my email, focused on my wife and my children for two years, very, very intently behind the scenes as I spent every day healing myself that I still do my practices every day working on my, my marriage, myself, my work, my so children. That was three years ago. That was three years mm -hmm. ago. Yeah. Three and a half years ago. And so I um, walked away and then focused on helping other people scale their impact and, and make a massive impact on this world through things that I had taught myself. Nobody really knew what happened to me. And, and during that time I went behind the scenes and I kind of became the wizard of Oz behind a lot of big companies and, I helped two companies become unicorns, hit a billion dollars. I helped over 300 companies go from under seven figures into the seven, eight, nine, and 10 figure range. And um, how did you keep yourself from not finding a new addiction? Oh, I did. Consulting was my new addiction. <laughs> and I became addicted to charging as much money as I could. And so I found a new way to do it. And, um, but I had no idea what consultants were or what they did or how they did it. And so I had one coach give me two really good pieces of advice. And one, he said, your value will never be predicated on somebody else's execution, which mm. like rocked my mind. And then the second one, he said, price is perception. Double your prices until somebody says no. And he said, you'll undervalue yourself. But if they say yes, then that's the value they see in their perception. And so in two years, I went from... <laughs> I'd never consulted before to being the highest paid digital marketing consultant in the world. Um, and I was delivering the success and the results. That's a fun thing to say, isn't it? It's so fun. And, 
<laughs> I also don't want it to be representation of like who I am because I don't care about money. I really genuinely will. Well, and just so everyone knows, um, George and I spent two hours talking before we even pressed play on the podcast and he just completely rocked my world with helping me with getting my mission out there and just, just like. Yeah. And so, and so really. um, Generous. He's very generous. Thank you. I, it's the best way to live. Reciprocity only works if you, you know, actually give first. Um, (laughs) It's an interesting concept. Uh, Add value, whether they give you their credit card or not. That's one of my marketing laws. Um, But um, oh yeah, and there is a cool free gift y'all get, which is awesome. But but yeah, Lisa, to really like look at it, I'd say it wasn't until about a year ago, like from today, that I really figured out who I am and who I want to be, and because it was the first time that I went and did work on myself, and not to do work on myself for my wife or for my children or for the business, but like to genuinely fill my tank and and fall in love with myself and going dark on social for you know two and a half years allowed me to um, be in a relationship with the one person I got to spend the rest of my life with whether I liked it or not and that was me you know I I do a lot you know I I practice I run men's groups I'm in men's groups I I do a whole lot of philosophy studying and stoicism and you know psychology on myself and things like that yeah it's been it's been really interesting because it's it's really you know stories stories don't define who we are as people Right. Like, and what I found is that I was addicted to my stories and allowing myself to define who I was through my stories to hold myself back, right. To, to keep myself stuck or in purgatory or in the cycle that I was comfortable with, which was chaos. And I came to understand that I thrived in chaos because that's what I was used to, or that's at least what I told myself. And so certainty and safety were uncomfortable for me and I would sabotage them. So things would get easy and I would work less, but I would always find a way to make it harder or get an account closed or get something shut down or or do it all. And, you know, it really came down to, you know, once I was like, once I healed myself and once I chose to see things a little bit differently, really the biggest win was creating containers for myself And by containers for myself, like, you know, I only work like maybe five to six hours a day and I run eight companies and a mastermind and consult still. Right. And so you can't get a hold of me before 10 a.m. And so like the first four hours of my day are spent in silence with no outside triggers from the world except my family. So I'm like in charge of my day. Right. And so what I started to realize is that I'm no different as a person, like who I am innately as a person now than I was seven years ago. The only difference is the level of awareness that I have and, and awareness is the game win for me, right? Because I was addicted in my life to finding a distinction to then being able to take an action on the distinction to quote unquote, fix things, right? Like if I did that, I'd be different or tell me how to be a husband or tell me how to be a dad or tell me how to be a friend, right? I was addicted to the process and the checklist so I could do it and not be it, right? Because being it meant I had to feel. And so it's been really interesting for me is that, you know, I spend probably eight hours a day on the phone with people helping them and, and coaching and mindset and things like that. But really all of them, it's all, it all comes down to the same thing that the name of the game is awareness, right? And it's not awareness to do something. It's awareness 
So then you choose whether you do it or not do it, right? I call it the wedge. That's what Wim Hof calls it. That's why I do cold therapy. I hate being cold. I fucking hate it. But yet I convince myself to take an ice bath or a cold shower every day because I hate it. And <laughs> I'm like, if I can sit in this ice bath for 37 minutes and oh my like God. <laughs> feel like, but literally feel like every ounce of me for the first two minutes feels like I want to die and I'm not going to make it. And I sit there though, knowing I'm not going to, I'm just increasing my capacity to hold structure in the face of resistance, right? And so, you know, in life and in business, I feel like the, the biggest win is triggers happen, right? And we either respond or react and reacting is not good, right? So trigger, got it, pause, wait, and then choose when to respond, which is like awareness. And it's interesting to me how simple it really can be when it comes down to like just knowing how to take a breath and knowing how to hold a feeling or to hold space. And so, you know, when I, when I think about the whole story and if like there was a moral of the story, if I could share like one thing to remember for everybody. And, you know, there's probably two hours of the story that didn't even get covered from other trauma to other things, the suicides, the stuff like that. And I'm open to talking about them with anybody, anytime when they deserve the space or the light to be talked about and they serve a purpose other than validation for ego or attention for me, right? And so I say that because if I summed up like the biggest takeaway in my life, it would be that the only reason I struggled for so long or it felt so hard is because I was more addicted to being right than I was addicted to being myself. And as my buddy Jim Quick says, you know, if you fight for your limitations, you get to keep them. And so I actually don't like telling my story much anymore unless it's been asked upon because it became a part of my identity and I would tell it and like, oh, I'm the guy that had a broken story. I'm the guy that this happened to. I'm the guy that this happened to, like perpetuating this victim cycle over and over and over again. And really like freedom for me came from when I started meeting people like you and we had a conversation and I knew a lot about you. And I didn't take it upon myself to verbally diarrhea on you for three hours about every ounce of trauma and intimate detail of my life that didn't serve any context for the conversation. It was, uh, I get to connect with you in that present moment for who I choose to be in that moment, not for the story that I choose to use as wrapping paper to like project this ulterior ego to the world. And so when I said it at the beginning, I own my story so my story can't own me. And when I say that, I own my story inside of me, not that I have to own it to the world, not that I have to justify or keep checklists or this is how things go. Like I just own it. And if it serves a purpose, I share it. And if it doesn't, I just love that that's where I came from and that that's how I get to focus. And so I reflect every day and write. And I, I write about how grateful I am that I have my parents and how grateful I am that I'm alive. And then I got to experience those things and I got to, you know, do something I was proud of and, and serve this country, whether you agree with it or not. Like that was cathartic for me. Like that was healing for me. And that now I can sit here and say like, okay, George, you don't need to make any more speed bumps in your life. Right. Cause the level of work I do now and, and time I spend meditating, like my favorite place is the float tank. Right. Cause you can get in some good places in your head there. And um, I haven't tried it. I want to. Oh, it's amazing. And so, but also realizing that, 
when I look back, like the amount of times that I'm aware that I created the speed bumps to have chaos again, I created the pain to have comfort again. And so I say awareness is always the name of the game because awareness is just a, oh, that's interesting, right? But you have to advocate yourself of fault, blame, guilt, and shame or else you repeat the cycle. And so like my favorite thing to do every day is like to reflect and like to be aware, right? Like, oh, oh, I had that thought again. Like I'll write it down or like, oh, that happened again. Like I'll write it down, right? Just to continue to like raise awareness to have self-integrity and self-accountability. So those things that the triggers come and the stress comes or like right now in business, I told you this before, between two of my companies, we're losing about 50 grand a day right now. And every part of me- Because of the- Because of the uncertainty in the current times, yeah. But of course, naturally, just like everybody else, I was riddled with fear and scarcity, right? Like, oh, and, but I never let the world or anybody see it. I go into my own time for as long as I need till I can process that and be grounded and proactive and make a choice. And we did the exact opposite of what everybody thinks we should do. We gave our employees a raise. We cut our pay as the owners. And then we're actually giving away free supplements to our customers. And it's like counterintuitive, but not really. It's supporting people in uncertain times so that we have a depth of a relationship because this is just temporal, Mm -hmm. right? But it took the ability to like feel that and hold that to then choose to respond versus react. And so, you know, like sometimes I wish I could just plug my heart into some other people's hearts or let like plug you in to my brain so you could see, oh, I see you because like I see your greatness because that's all you are right? Like you're a bright light, like you're a leader, like people listen to you, they respond to you because of how aware and connected and deep you go as a human and people like you, Lisa, change this world, right? And so like I spend my days every day right now trying to see as many people as I can because it also helps me see myself, right? And it helps me, you know, be in service and support. And so, yeah, it's interesting because this is like the most haphazardly my stories ever come out and it wasn't the contrived version that I've told so many times. Welcome to GFR show. (laughs) That's what we're all about here. And I'm so glad that you um, relaxed into it and, um, and that we have, we I feel have, like your ears might be bleeding at this point. It's like, George, 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 George. Well, you know, I really, maybe this will be the last time you ever tell it in this, you know, I just got an intuition about, you know, like this could be like, all right, this is it. This is, this is the whole story. Go, go listen to the GFR show episode, whatever yeah. this will be, you know, if you want to hear the story, because, you know, yeah, I'm, and I, I'm, I, I'm going I, forward from here. And I could talk, I could talk to you for like 20 hours about this, but what I think is so, so prevalent, what I like appreciate about you, like, I love the name of your show, the GFR show, right? Cause I trademarked unapologetically authentic a couple years ago. You did. <laughs> I did. I actually still have hoodies that say unapologetically authentic, unapologetically authentic. Um, the problem was I wore the hoodies to remind myself to be it every day, except I really wasn't being it. But eventually, you know, I stopped wearing the hoodie and I started being authentic. The story is interesting because I learned. Inspiring, George. It is inspiring. It was totally. And I, I also learned, I learned temperance and I also learned the difference between authenticity and intimacy. Right. And so I think that there's a very important lesson here because I found my insecurity in this podcast wanting to drop certain things 
and say certain things that would have gotten me validation or empathy, not from a place of I'm supporting you, but from a place of I'm manipulating you into paying attention to me. And it's really interesting because I love that line now, though, that I'm aware of it because, you know, say the line again, which one? So you're saying you love the line. Oh, I love, I love awareness. I love the line. Yeah. I love the line that I'm aware of the difference between um, authenticity and intimacy. Beautiful. Yes. And so, you know, what I love about story is story is what creates a container for other people to self-identify into a journey for themselves. Yes. That is the purpose of this show. You just summed it right up. And it's enrollment versus like convincing. Right. And so what I've learned is that, you know, stories are absolutely powerful and they should be used and they should also be used with intentionality and respect for self to where, you know, my story is, oh yes, I experienced sexual abuse at nine and 13. Right. But two years ago, I would have told you every explicit detail and that's intimacy. I have to be really aware of them because it's a fine line. It's a very, very fine line. And when, when I share from authenticity, it moves people and it also moves me because I'm not the story. I'm just explaining the story. It's not who I am. It's just a part of something that happened. Yes. Yes. When I get into the intimacy of it, right. And all the details, it actually pulls me backwards because I'm basically re-owning that story. Right. Right. Yeah. And like, so you'll hear that. me, you'll hear me like you won't, you won't hear me say I'm a veteran. You also won't hear me say that uh, I'm a Marine. And I was like, no, no, I was a Marine and I served in the military. Right. But the entire country has this context that 22 veterans a day commit suicide and the boom, boom, boom. And I was like, I don't want to be programming my subconscious that like, I am that. I'm like, no, 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 I was, I was there. Right. And so the power of, of story with self is really, really uh, powerful. So I practice and, and I'm going to share this with you and, and I don't share this with many people except my men's coaching students, but there's one practice that I do every day that is single-handedly transformed my life. And I think every human being should try it for at least 30 days. Okay. This will be a great way to, to, um, to, yeah. I can't even say wrap up. We'll hit pause for the next one. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, and so I call it, I call it being a mountain, right. To be a mountain. Right. And so I wrote this quote and I just have to read it to you really, really quickly. Cause it'll give context to this if you don't mind. And so it's a short quote, but, uh, I am a mountain. The man who becomes a mountain does so by staying focused on becoming a mountain. Inch by inch, the foundation gets wider, stronger, and more stable. Storms come, earthquakes shift, man tramples, and the mountain still grows. Every storm brings rain that helps the plants grow and thrive. The cracks from the earthquake widen the base, and that rainwater naturally filters, giving man drinking water as they trample. See, the mountain knows there are things happening outside of its existence, but it never allows them to influence its mission. So with every trigger, storm, disaster, he finds a new opportunity to evolve and grow to accomplish his mission, to be a mountain. And so that post came from what I call the mountain practice. And so containers are really, really powerful, right? And one of my missions in life is to get to a point where I don't need containers anymore because I realize I am structure. I don't create structure. Right. And this is some deep 
philosophy stuff. And um, well, I think we need this now more than ever. <laughs> and so when when the mountain thing came up, what had happened was is I realized that when I was spending my days in the morning, like three to four hours in solitude and silence before I let the world touch me, I was so connected to self and source and intuition. Like it was like I had the cheat codes to life in those times. And then I would start to notice that I would feel like that. But then the moment I would like pick up my phone or respond to a text or read something, it felt like I was diluting my power, right? Like yes. I felt like I was giving it away because I hadn't solidified my tank that day. My comfort yes. wasn't my tank is full and I'm serving the world. My comfort was, uh, I can't fill my tank till I respond to the world, which is ass backwards. And so I challenged a couple of men that I coach and myself. And I said, so what I want you to do is have a morning practice, right? That gives you an ounce, an inch, a minute, 10 minutes, 20 minutes of space. And I mean space, like no phone, no computer, no conversations with loved ones, like having the intentionality and discipline to do this. And so let's say um, you normally get up at six, right? Get up at 5.30, okay? Or get up at 5.45. And the only thing you're allowed to do is to open your phone, voice memos, hit record, and share whatever thoughts come out until there's no thoughts left. Might be 10 seconds, might be 30 seconds, but you're not recording it for anybody else. You're not sharing it to share it with people. You're documenting your natural state in that moment. Right when you get up. Right when, and I mean like, right when you, like you should be groggy, right? Mm -hmm. And there, there's days where I've been like, oh man, I have nothing to say. Or I have to pee. That's a few Right. But like, or pee first, but <laughs> oh, just okay. don't allow any triggers. No news. No, yes. no, no interactions. No external, no, input. In, no external inputs. Right. Try it for 30 days. Okay. Now here's what's amazing. Every man that I've had do this now has turned every one of them into a podcast. <laughs> And they are- but We shouldn't have that in our mind when we're doing no, it. No, 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 but, but here's what's interesting. And I told them this is what would happen. Getting three to four times the engagement of their normal podcast episodes. And I said, do you know why? And they said, well, not really. I said, because when you record podcasts, you're manipulating people. When you record your mountain post, you're in flow and enrolling people. And I said, the difference is when you recorded podcasts in the past, you're like, this is what I'm going to talk about. This is what I want it to be. This is what it's called action, right? Like, it's for you. I'm putting it on you and you and you. When you record your mountain post, it's like me, 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 which allows people to subconsciously self-identify and choose to come into the path. So they fast forward a lot, right? But there's days like I talked about, um, there was one I, um, I went, woke up, went to the float tank, spent an hour and a half in the float tank, came out and hit record. And I recorded words and phrases and understandings of like quantum physics and biology that I didn't even know I had that just came out because I had spent so much time and 90 minutes in complete darkness and sensory deprivation feeling my body. And so my favorite thing to do now is to go back and listen to my mountain posts. <laughs> and for me, this is a big distinction on how I know I love myself, Lisa. Up until about three months ago, I, you'd hear me say, I don't listen to my own content. I can't stand my own voice. I can't stand my own voice, right? It was a lie. I couldn't accept my own sovereignty. And so I would avoid hearing myself 
because I didn't want to be able to give myself feedback that like maybe I was insecure in that moment or a little too aggressive or really grounded and let it in. I was kind of robbing myself of, of that joy. And I so, couldn't accept my own sovereignty. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. <sighs> and so I, yeah. what, what, it, what it is now is I love it because I record them in the morning and sometimes they're two minutes and sometimes they're 28 minutes and it's just me talking. And literally the moment I don't have a thought, I just stop and that's it. And it doesn't matter what it looks like. In the moment I find myself like wanting to say more, I just follow the rabbit hole. I just follow the white rabbit wherever it goes. And then I hit stop. But it's really beautiful because I literally look forward to opening them and hearing my own voice, which is my big inclination that like I've fully fallen in love with myself because I love what I have to say because that's me, not the tainted, adultered, external triggered what mask am I going to put onto the world me? And so I listen to those things all the time. And normally I just open any random one. And I hit play and I only need about 20 seconds and it grounds the absolute crap out of me. Your and own voice. My own voice. And I tell people too, like people listen to guided meditations, right? They listen to um, incantations or affirmations, right? I have my mastermind students do this and we did this exercise and I basically had them go around the room it's another good one for you guys. Go around the room and uh, do this virtually now or wherever you are. And I said, I want you to go find a person that you haven't talked to. And I want you to introduce yourself like you're standing 30 days in the future. Present tense. And then I want you to do it 90 days. And then I want you to do it 12 months. And I want you to do it five years, right? And so I had them do four rounds. And then I had them all come down and I had them write basically a succinct version of like, who they are five years from now with all those inputs, right? And all present tense. And then I had them all record it in their own voice and listen to it and then make a commitment to listen to it every day, every morning, at least once. And copywriting, marketing lesson here, effective copywriting is done so people don't have to read, they feel. If somebody nice. has to read something, you've already lost them because they're in their head when somebody can just understand and flow, they feel something, which is what keeps them emotionally moving forward. No one can program us like our own voice can. And so it cuts through all levels of resistance because you're speaking to yourself. Nice. And so when you can record in your voice and then listen to your own voice, and there's studies that show how powerful this is. Like you like 12 X the process of like speed. Like you make an affirmation every day, like I'm an abundant, loving, powerful woman. And you listen to it every day, two to three times a day, be a matter of weeks before you're a different person, not like months or years. And so little things that I like to do is like really just creating as many spaces as possible to be in love with myself and have conversations with myself, which also gets me grounded that the only person that can give feedback to me is me. And the only person who needs to know the intimate details of my feelings is me. And there's nothing for me if I share them in the world because I don't need anything back. And so those are, those are some of the things that that and a daily breath practice are probably the biggest needle movers in my entire life. And, you know, it's what I get to do now to literally work for four to five hours a day and run eight. Well, you spend four with me, so. I know. I love honest. it. I mean, I, my tank is full. Like, my tank <laughs> is full. Like, this was a gift to me. And, um, yeah, I just think, and I think I know, like, I know. In this, in this world and the time that we live in, 
you know, I'm so grateful for the current situation because I said this to a couple people and I was like, oh, I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid of this. Like they took this. I'm like, yeah, your human agency was in theory taken away from you, but nobody's afraid of being on isolation. Everybody's afraid of being alone. Everybody's afraid of being with themselves and exploring what that feels yes. like. And yes. it's a reset button because like at the end of the day, there is no business. There's no marketing. There's no, you know, coaches, student, teachers, experts, non-experts. It's just relationships and we're human. I really think all of us need to spend time focusing on the fact that there's a human on the other side of every one of our transactions, transformations, touch points in life and spend more time connecting, not disconnecting. Like social media is amazing when you use it to connect, right? Like technology is amazing that we can be on Zoom for four hours, record podcasts and reach so many people in the world. And so utilize these things for good and, and realize that every choice and decision that, and, and I can only speak for me, I don't want to project on anybody. Every choice and decision that I make is directly responsible for either moving me forward or moving me back. Right. And so it's a short life and there, there's one to live and, you know, life happens moment to moment to moment. But when we can really own our story, fall in love with ourselves, hold space, document our flow, you know, speak kindly to ourselves and really be aware you have the cheat codes of life and you can have and do whatever you want. And, you know, in my opinion, um, money is just energy. And for me, I feel like money flows and is created in my life when my come from is congruent and of service. And agreed that's the only place to be, which none of that comes from doing anything for the outside world. It comes from doing everything for your inside world and then sharing that, you know, with the outside world. George, thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. And I just didn't, yeah, it just, I appreciate all the parts of your journey and I um, appreciate the wisdom that you just laid upon us in just the last 10 minutes here. Um, I think it's very relevant to, the culture, the world culture right now and um, speaks to me personally. I am super fucking clear that I, uh, that self-love and um, celebrating my wholeness are my top priorities and that's what's going to have me feel peaceful at this time. So thank you for your applause. Um, And so- Sorry, okay. one, one last thing. No, and one it's a, it's, last thing. <laughs> no, it's, it's 15 It's 15 I'm addicted seconds. to you, George, so you're testing me here. <laughs> no, no, Lisa, it, it's 15 seconds. And one of my teachers, um, Stefano Safando, said this to me the other day. And, and given what you just talked about in, in the current state, it was the most powerful short version of, of what I said. But he said, the world is calling for leaders, right? Like the, the world is calling for leaders. But in order to lead, you don't deepen your service, you deepen your practice. Beautiful. And it's the best advice I've ever received in my entire life. And so I would invite everybody to, to look in and, and fall in love and find more times and space to be in love with self and share that with the world. And, and Lisa, I just wanted to thank you. And I consider it a gift every time anybody lets me bump my gums and I am addicted to hearing myself talk, if you couldn't tell. But I own that because I love that. And, and for everybody listening... Time is the one asset that I can never give back to you. And if you're listening to this, you chose to spend this amount of time with me and know that I will never forget that. And I am here. My team is here for anything, for any of you that have 
so eloquently and powerfully given me this time to hear me and allow me to feel seen and share my story. And so to everybody listening, thank you absolutely immensely from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, George Bryant. Thank you, Lisa. Woo. Right. I mean, did I, did I set it up good? (laughs) I'm so glad you got to meet him. And because he is who he is, his free gift to the audience is a bunch of stuff. And it's basically all the free training you could possibly consume. And you can find it at mindofgeorge.com. Um, also link in the show notes, which is um, primarily delivered through his awesome Facebook group community, which now I'm now a part of. And just one of the many things in there is a 30-day transformational marketing mini course. That's a $5,000 value. So um, go, go check that out. Um, receive his brilliance and and now you can receive it knowing that he is has the the PhD in GFR wormhole certifications, um, and he is the real, real, real deal. All right, over and out for now. I look forward to sharing the next amazing story with you in our next amazing episode.